9, verses 32 through 43. And if you're like me, you kind of have to flip through the last, uh, well, the first chapters of Acts to kind of reorient yourself, because it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Acts. Um, and uh, so let me really, really quickly kind of catch you up and remind you of some of the big ideas and core themes that we've seen developing through the book of Acts. If you remember, the church is formed, but it's not simply formed um, as a corporation might be formed. Rather, it's formed through and under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, the church is founded, and it's founded because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which demonstrates that the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed real. If Christ claimed to have authority, and he claimed and told his disciples prior to his death and resurrection to start the church after his death, but he did not raise, what's the point? But not only that, the church has been commissioned by Jesus Christ. You see this in the very first few uh, verses of Acts itself, where he comes and he tells the disciples who are gathered that the Holy Spirit will come, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to empower and equip the church for service, and not only service in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He tells them that they are commissioned, they are given the message of Jesus Christ to take to the world. And the church then progresses steadily in fulfilling her given mission. And as she does that, waves of persecution come. Persecution comes from people like Saul, who kill Stephen. Persecution comes still in the hands of Saul as he scatters the believers who are in Jerusalem. And he then marches to Damascus to take the believers who are in Damascus and bring them back to persecute them in Jerusalem. And yet the church advances still. Why? Because... It is not simply an organization as you and I think of. Rather, it is based on the authority of Jesus Christ that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin pops up, but sin is incapable of toppling the resolve of the church. Why? Because they know whom they serve. And so Ananias and Sapphira sin. Other people sin in trying to acquire the power that the disciples have, and yet sin is incapable of toppling her resolve. The mission advances because it is not the entity that accomplishes the mission, but rather it is Jesus Christ. The mission advances because it is fueled by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as you and I take our copy of God's Word, and we read through Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, you're going to see this idea of resurrection is a very current and very present idea. It's maybe not immediately evidence, but what's going on is based off of who Jesus is, and the fact that Jesus is the one who is fueling this you see, the resurrection power is still at work. It's still at work in Acts, and it's still at work today. Jesus has a desire to work through you and I to see people come to saving knowledge of him. 
Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a, na a certain man named Anus, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Anus, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When, she had washed, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose, and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with him. But Peter put them all out, knelt down, and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. That he's provided us with redemption. That he's provided us with hope. That he's provided us with forgiveness. That he provides us and gives us the strength and the resolve to continue on with pray that this passage would encourage us and remind us that you are continuing to work, that your mission has not ceased, that you have a desire to use us to see others come to saving knowledge of you. In your name we pray. Amen. As the text begins, Jesus, uh, sorry, the, the theme of the text is proclaim Christ boldly, knowing his resurrection fuels our mission. Proclaim Christ boldly, knowing his resurrection our mission. Christ works in Lydda and Sharon. And this is the first idea. And it seems like maybe there's two different unique stories. And I believe that the two unique stories are uh, intricately connected together as a result of the primary verb that you find in both texts. And it's a clue, it is a reminder to us of the reason that those commands can even be given. And, and so Christ works in Lydda. And as the text begins, Peter is seen as Christ's ambassador. You see that he's going about his work. He's doing what he has been called to do. He's going all around the country. This is exactly where we've seen Peter. If you remember, we haven't seen Peter for a couple of chapters. It's been a while since we've seen Peter, because Peter takes a break, I think it's in chapter 8, and then chapter 9 pops up in Saul's prominence. And it's a description of Saul's persecution of the church and how God radically captures the heart of Saul and transforms that man and makes him a dear and needed servant of the Lord to bring many people to Christ. And Peter's just going about what he's supposed to be doing. He's a servant. He's serving, he's seeking to do what he's supposed to do. And so he's just an ambassador. 
And as the text continues to unfold, you see that he has a strong reliance upon the Lord. Peter doesn't have this idea in the text that he's able to perform these miracles or to do these things apart from Christ. His reliance is completely upon the Lord. And as you and I seek to be servants who are used by the Lord, we need to develop and maintain the same type of mindset where we realize that we're simply servants of the Lord, that we're simply sent out by him to accomplish his mission. He's simply the tool of Christ. He maintains his dependency upon the Lord. But not only that, Peter's initial ministry is to the saints. It's interesting. You would think that as you look at the results in verse 35, uh, turn to the Lord, and then as you look at the results in verse 42, many believed on the Lord, that his primary ambition, his primary drive as he's going out as an ambassador for the Lord is that he'd go and he'd find unbelievers, and as he finds the unbelievers, he would proclaim to them, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and you've got to believe in him to receive the righteousness that only God can provide, and receive the forgiveness of sins that only God can provide. That's not immediately what Peter does. Rather, he's going to the saints. And you see this in both texts. It makes specific notes of Peter's mission, and his initial ministry is to and so he goes, and he's going to minister to the saints. And as he arrives, um, it seems that his, his specific desire is that he would minister to the people at Lydda. That means that at some point, whether it's as a result of the persecution that came earlier in Acts, or if it's a result of missionary endeavors, somehow the gospel has already reached Lydda. It's taken a foothold there already. And God's work is advancing. And yet, even though God's word is there, and God's word is advancing there, and it's accomplishing what it is already there, God's mission is not complete. I think there is so much for us to realize and to learn as we see this. In both situations, as God works in Lida and God works in Sharon, the saints are already present. People have already professed and believed in Christ. And yet God's mission isn't complete. And in your communities, in your workplaces, in the places where you and I go for recreation, for fun, God's already working. But is God done working in those situations? Is God willing to just take a step back and look at what he's accomplished already and the various venues that he's placed you and I and say, you know, that's enough. That'll do. I'm good. No, no. The idea that the text is communicating to us is that God has a desire to continue to advance his mission. That's what Acts is all about. Time and time again, just look at verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. God's message continues to advance. Why? Because it's fueled by Christ. It's under his authority. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And time and time again, Sovereignty of the Lord is seen as he works in the book of Acts. 
And so he goes to the cities. And as he goes there, he meets Agnes, a, a man who's been paralyzed for eight years. Why does the text highlight that? Simply so that you and I, as we read that, we go, wow, that's a long time. In eight years, I finished my undergrad and I finished my graduate work. That is a long time. I mean, just look at your kids and think about how much they've grown up in eight years. I look at my daughter's pictures from one year to the next, I'm like, wow, you've grown up a lot. The idea is that this is an extended long period of time. If there was any transformation that was going to be expected in Agnes's life, it would have already come. Everybody in his community knows that this man is paralyzed and he's going to be paralyzed for the rest of his life. This is his condition, and it's his condition to stay in for the rest of his life. And so the whole community, these communities are far more intimately involved than we are. These people didn't have social security. They couldn't simply stay in their house and get a social security check. They had to go out into their community, be carried out on a bed, and then beg from the people who would interact with them for money so that they could buy food for the next day. The whole community knows this man. The whole community knows the situation. Now the text highlights that so you and I see the situation. So that the significance of the miracle when it takes place Something has transformed this man. What is it? How did it happen? And Peter comes to him and he proclaims the sufficient and complete power of Jesus the Messiah. He comes to this man and in verse 34 he says, Agnes, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one for whom our people long for, he heals you. And he gives him two commands. Arise. Make your bed. And these two commands go together, right? It's like when Jesus himself heals the lame man that's lowered through the roof in John, right? If Jesus had simply said to the man, your sins are forgiven, he'd be like, all right, that's great. I mean, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, right? But if you go the step forward and you say, your sins are forgiven, and by the way, get up and walk. All of a sudden, there is a demonstration that something has taken place there that no mortal can accomplish. And the, the two commands demonstrate that the one command is actually real. And then the response of the community further acknowledges that this man has been transformed. He tells him, arise and make your bed. This is a task he hasn't accomplished for eight years. For eight years, on a regular basis, this man has had his bed carried for him, rolled up for him, packaged for him, and he's carried to the next location to go and beg for money. And Peter comes and he tells him, by the power of Jesus Christ, get up and make your bed. What's the response? The response is he does just that. And it brings up the question, who then is Jesus, right? He tells him, arise and make your bed because of who Jesus is. Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Arise and make your bed. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God. 
Jesus is God, and he is the one who's come to save sinners. You see, mankind rebelled against God. And as a result, all mankind are under the curse of sin. All mankind is separated from God. All mankind is unable to come into communion and a relationship with God. And God has a desire to see mankind restored to him. And so he sends Jesus into the world to come and to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins, to die on the cross so that anyone who will look upon him and place their faith in his finished work can have forgiveness of sins and receive the righteousness of God. But Jesus himself demonstrated that the truths that he proclaimed about himself isn't simply fairy tales. It's not simply a man who was a crazy person. How did he do this? How did he demonstrate that what he said was actually true? He rose from the dead. And, and so as Peter talks with this guy, he tells him, it's the same word. Arise. Get up. And the response is, he gets up. And then the response of the community is that when the power of the resurrected Christ is displayed, people turn to Christ. So all who dwelt in light of Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. You see, God's work is not done. God is still drawing people to himself, and he does so as a result of who he is. It is fueled by the person of Jesus Christ. The following story demonstrates that Christ is at work in Joppa as well. And as you read the text, the message that Jesus has preached in Joppa, you see this. In verse 36, it demonstrates that the text is our, the, the, the word of God has already reached there. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. There's already somebody who's following hard after God. And not only are they pursuing a knowledge of God, their life demonstrates that they have understood the word of God and it's so drastically affected their life that they're effectively serving. It's very much like the text, 2 Timothy 3.17, where the word of God effectively equips Dorcas and she goes out and she does a lot. She serves. And she serves in, in wonderful ways. Jesus is at work in the people of Joppa. And specifically, this is pictured in the life of Dorcas. She's doing good works and charitable deeds. But God's not sufficed with what's happened in Joppa. Yeah, Dorcas has come to know Christ. Dorcas is a completely changed individual. There's a community of believers around her who see that she's been changed, who are themselves pursuing the transformation that is possible through the Holy Spirit. But God's work is not done. You see, Christ has a desire to work. He has a desire to work in Lydon. He has a desire to work in Sharon. He has a, work to has a desire to work in Joppa. And he has a desire to work in you and I. And so God allows a trial to come into this body of believers. And Dorcas becomes ill and she dies. And the body, the Peter then is called. They, they send for Peter, and they're like, Peter, you got to come quick. And commentators speculate as to why exactly he leaves. 
Maybe there is a belief that Peter will be able to resurrect her. Maybe there's just a belief that he'll be able to minister the word of God effectively. The text doesn't explicitly state why Peter is sent for. Possibly, though, it does hint that there's a belief that there's going to be a resurrection here. Why else would you wash a body and then put that washed upper body that you're supposed to bury in the near future in an upstairs room? Right? Like, my thought would be like, don't carry the body upstairs and break somebody's back. Leave it on a bottom floor where it'll be easy to get around, right? And bury her. And I don't know, but it's kind of a speculation issue. But they send for Peter, and Peter then leaves for Joppa immediately. And as Peter comes, his dependence is completely upon the Lord. And you, you see the people who, who are mourning for Dorcas. As, they, as Peter comes in verse 39, he arose and he went with them and he came. And they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, knelt down, and prayed. And then he turns to the body, and he said, Tabitha, arise. You see, the two accounts are connected. And they're connected because of this repeated word that I think is supposed to hearken us back to the one who has truly arisen. Not because somebody told him to, but because it's who he is. It was in the divine plan from ages eternity past. And so he tells her, arise. But it's, it's not done in his own authority. It's not done in his own power. It's, it's done in dependence upon the Lord. You see, once again, Peter is an ambassador. He's not working on his own. He's completely dependent upon the Lord. He's relying upon him to work in and to transform people's hearts and lives. And as he does that, what happens? She does. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. The actual word isn't that he just presented her. The idea is he gave her back to them. What a gift, right? You look at how God is already working in Dorcas and providing for it and ministering to uh, the widows in Joppa. No doubt her, her ministry goes far deeper than simply making tunics for people. As she makes tunics for people, the knowledge of who Christ is is probably something that overflows in those conversations. And as she demonstrates physical care for them by providing them with a tunic as a impoverished widow, no doubt her conversations allow her to guide them and offer them with counsel and encourage them and strengthen them in the faith. And Peter comes and he gives her back to the church by her why? Because God's work isn't done. And then notice how, once again, this account is also concluded. He presents her alive to the church. So verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Christ's power is displayed, and many believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 43 is kind of a segue verse 
it almost is like, why did he come back here? Right? So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. I, I think part of it is the work of Joppa is not complete. Many people have come to know Christ, but the work's not done there. But God's work in the geographical area is definitely not complete. If you read chapter 10 in preparation for next week, you'll notice this immediately. Because in chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius in Caesarea, and he has an understanding of the one true God, but it's incomplete. And God's going to use Peter to bring him to saving knowledge, and once again, expand the boundaries of the gospel. The gospel has been in Jerusalem. It's exploded out of Jerusalem. It's gone to Judea. It's gone to Samaria. And in chapter 10, the gospel message is going to explode into the world of the Gentiles. And as it does so, it's confirmed and it's shown that it's not Peter who's doing it. Because Peter is portrayed throughout the whole text as somebody who's completely reliant upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is led by, directed by, and in accordance to the sovereign will of God. Peter is not a rogue agent. Peter is demonstrating that God is at work. And that God has a desire to work. He has a desire to work in Kaleida. He has a desire to work in Sharon. He has a desire to work in Joppa. But God's work is not done. The point of the text isn't to allow us to look back at Joppa and to look back at Sharon and Lida and go, my word, what a wonderful God we serve. Look at how he's worked in the past. Isn't that amazing? It would be great if you would continue to do that here in Des Moines. Right? The point of the text is not that. The point of the text is to point us to the continuing narrative that Jesus Christ is continuing to work. That the message of God is not complete. That the, the, the mission under the sovereign leadership of God the Father is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is fueled by the resurrection of Jesus. That's the idea. And so the text ends. But that's not really where the message is. Because the message doesn't end until we see Christ working in us. That's the point of the narrative, to remind you that Christ is still at work, and he uses people who are willing to be ambassadors for the Lord. You see, that's how God wants to use you and I. He wants to use you as an ambassador, as in a tool who realizes that he has a mission to advance his name to people who have not heard, who have not believed him. And he wants to use people like you and people like me to make him known throughout the nations. You see, we are simply tools. We are not needed for the advancement Rather, God graciously chooses to use flawed people in giving people. But Christ is at work in us. If you notice, Christ is at work in Joppa. He's at work in Joppa far longer before Peter arrives. He's at work in Lydda and Sharon far before Peter arrives. There's already saints there. Saints is literally... The holy ones. It's demonstrating that they are set apart, that they are pursuing hard after God. 
they want to be disciples who know and serve the Lord. And in Joppa, it's even highlighted to a greater degree because it, it says saints later on, I, I'm forgetting the exact verse, um, saints is specifically mentioned, but in, um, in our translations, unfortunately, uh, some of the translations, it doesn't translate it as saints. In verse 41, then he gave her his hands and lifted her up when he had called the saints and widows. But God is at work. God is at work in Dorcas, and we see that because she is one who is full of good works and charitable deeds. And God has a desire to work in you and I. He has a desire for us to realize that because Christ was crucified, because Christ was buried and that he's risen again, that you as someone who's placed their faith in him, that you've died to your sins, and that you've been raised to live in a brand new life. That as a result of the resurrection, there is hope for you. That as you submit to his will for your life, you can bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit and live as someone who is alive and not as someone who is dead. See, Christ has a desire to work in you and I. And then finally, Christ's power brings your friends, neighbors, and co-workers to saving it's not going to be your effort. It's not going to be my effort. It's not going to be your eloquent speech, though you should try to be as eloquent as God allows you to be. It's not about how fabulous the programs are. Rather, it's about Christ. It's about his power working in and through us to accomplish his desire. See, Christ's resurrection power is still now. And so we rely on him, and we boldly proclaim the sufficient, finished work of Jesus Christ. We, we proclaim it as we partake of the Lord's Supper, but if that's, if that's the end of how we proclaim the sufficiency of the power of the cross— Christ's desire is that the sufficiency of who he is would be proclaimed and would be made evident to those who are outside our walls. That as a result of us living in obedience to him, the people would come to a saving faith in Christ. And so as we, as we conclude, we rejoice in the power of the risen Lord. It's not your effort. It's not my effort. It's Christ accomplishing the mission which the Father gave him beforehand. It's the Holy Spirit empowering and equipping you and I to be effective tools for his service. We submit to Christ's work in our life. Ultimately, I think the text is pointing us that his desire is not simply that we would, we would do charitable acts and good deeds. So that should be evident in our life. But ultimately, his desire is that that as a result, the, the resurrection power that is still at work in the world would be made evident more clearly in our lives. And then finally, we proclaim Christ faithfully and trust him to do it. It's not your work, it's not my work. We faithfully proclaim
saying who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. We faithfully proclaim that there is danger that people fail to receive the message of Christ. But we trust Christ to do the work. And the text is pointing us once again to the fact that God is still at work. And because he's still at work, you and I can faithfully proclaim and trust that we will continue to advance his gospel message until all who he's appointed to hear and come to saving faith will hear and be saved. And as a result, you and I can trust him because he is faithful. Father, we do thank you for your work. We thank you for the fact that we can trust you, that we can rely upon you, and that your message of salvation continues to advance, and it will continue to advance until you choose to have it end. And we know that that hasn't happened yet, because we are still here, and there are still people who have not heard the message of your son. We pray that you would help us to live faithful Christian lives this time of year. We also pray that you would help us to be faithfully proclaiming Thank you.